I would invite you to return with me to Peter's second epistle. We have been out of it for a number of weeks, but I would ask you, how often do you contemplate the kindness and patience of God? And as I thought about that, that one question, so many passages of Scripture probably come to your mind, like Romans 2, 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness or the goodness of God leads you to repentance? This is a common theme in Scripture. It's not just a New Testament truth that is revealed. It is revealed through the prophets of the Old Testament. Joel tells us in Joel 2, 12 and 13, Return with me, says the Lord, with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. This is a truth that was revealed to Israel, but not just to God's chosen people. How about the Ninevites? In Jonah chapter 3, after the prophet comes to town, we're told that the heathen repented. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, that God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them, and He did not do it. Why not? Because in the next chapter, Jonah 4.2, the prophet exclaims, I knew about you, God, that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, one who relents concerning calamity. Nahum 1 and verse 3, Nahum tells us that the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You don't have to go too many different Old Testament texts to see that many people have mistakenly thought and taught that there is a spiteful God of the Old Testament that is different from the God of New Testament revelation. This is a theme rehearsed by the psalmist time and again. In Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, he reflects how that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. The Lord's compassionate and gracious slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. Notice this recurring theme in Scripture that He is slow to anger. He abounds in mercy. Psalm 86, 15, You, O Lord, are, are a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness and truth. When Nehemiah recounts the history of God's rebellious people, the house of Israel. He says in his prayer to the Lord, they refused to listen. 
and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you have performed among them, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. We, beloved, cannot think too often about the great news of the gospel is that God forgives sinners of whom you and I could be chief. He pardons and redeems. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. So many verses on the patience of God, His kindness, His goodness. And with that as the backdrop, I think that you'll be encouraged in this respect this morning as we learn at the foot of the Apostle Peter that the Lord is not tardy. As we continue in our prayers and petitions as the psalmist, how long, O Lord? How long until your kingdom comes? How long until the wicked ways are undone and your justice is served and your people delivered? You know, God's patience. As we look at the patient calendar of God and God's timetable in 2 Peter, this is a truth that your experience and your intellect cannot validate, especially at times of life when you can't trace His hand as to what He's doing, and at times you wonder about the closeness and His purpose and His plans. I want you to note this morning two truths about God and the gospel that will enhance our understanding and appreciation of grace. It will lead us into worship and adoration as we review the gospel and as we rehearse the greatness of God. Two truths for us this morning. We start off, first of all, with a review of what we've learned about the gospel of grace thus far in Second Peter. Perhaps you haven't been with us. Perhaps you have, but are like me and need much reminder as to where we've been, what has Peter already taught us, knowing even what we have learned that we are not perfect practitioners, or maybe you are, but I am not. Maybe we ought to be more concerned and not what we don't understand, but what we have been exposed to in doing and obeying what we are accountable for. Second Peter is a very short epistle, three chapters. Three main headings that you could outline the book to categorize your thoughts about Second Peter. Peter starts off in chapter 1 with a precious faith. If you were to put bullet point over chapter 1 of Second Peter, it would be precious faith. As he unpacks the greatness of the gospel, he starts off in the first four verses. Two items that overview the gospel. He, he salutes the beloved, those who have been redeemed by God's grace, and he prays with them for grace and peace. And after he addresses them, 
He reminds them of the all-sufficient Christ and the all-sufficient Word as he unpacks the, the greatness of the gospel. That was part one. Part two, verses 5 through 8 of 2 Peter 1, Peter exhorted us to grow in gospel grace. He gave us seven virtues, fruit of true saving faith, those who have been redeemed, born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, that these sort of things will be if you're in Christ. And matter of fact, they won't just be there, they'll be growing. Maybe not growing to the exponential proportions that you would want, but there is growth, there is increase. And if there is presence of gospel graces and growth of gospel graces as you reflect upon your life, there's great assurance that you're in Christ. There's great assurance that you've truly believed. Part 3 2 Peter 1, verses 9 through 15, he gave us the necessity of grasping that security of the believer, that if you have experienced true saving faith, it bears repetition. We ought to be knowing and being reminded on a constant basis. That's that's the need for uh, biblical consecutive exposition. You take a book of the Bible and some of the same themes are are there that are in other books of the Bible. And uh, Peter meets us in the first chapter, verses 9 through 15, with, yeah, there are those that live in Matthew 7, those that are the deceived, those that think they're the beloved, those that think they are saved, but they live in deception. They're not genuine. But he talks about this perseverance and applying the means of grace, growth in holiness. And as you're growing, you're assured as you apply the spiritual disciplines to your life. And then he rounds out the chapter in part four with the validity of biblical faith. What is the source of the gospel? The source of true knowledge. The Bible is foundational for everything that Peter has to tell us or that you and I have to study. We have the sure word of the living God. And a matter of fact, Peter reflects upon when he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And though he had experienced the reality of Christ's kingdom, he says we have a more sure word, even more sure than the experience that I had up on the mountain. A more sure word of prophecy. Because if there is no absolute standard, everything's up for grabs. If you don't believe in an inspired, inerrant word, then, then we engage in opinion and speculation and man's wisdom. So Peter gives us a chapter on the precious faith. Peter continues in chapter 2 with a portrait of a false teacher. You want to know what to, after you understand the gospel and understand redemption, what do you need to be leery of? What do you need to be warned of? Verses 1 through 3, notice the danger of false teaching. It's forever with you. There's a constant presence of false teaching. It's given great prestige in our day, 
And the purpose, they've got malicious purposes for spouting their heretical thoughts. Then he assures certain destruction for those that pretend to be spokesmen for God. These pretenders, they will be destroyed. It's promised, it's illustrated, and it's withheld from the elect. Verses 3 through 10, sure destruction for the false teacher. And he rounds out the section with an unmistakable portrait, verses 10 through 22, with description of them, what to look for, and their destruction. And then we've got a third chapter to Second Peter. Peter focuses on the future. He ministers hope to the beleaguered, those left in the rubble of false teachers' destructive words and damning heresies. He ministers moment-by-moment living hope that the believers are to live in light of. He says false teachers deny it. They scoff that Jesus is coming again. Do they not? In living a life of hope, Nathan Busnitz reflects upon the significance of this ministered hope of the future, hope to the church. The hope of Christ's coming was of paramount importance for the early church. In fact, its certainty was so real that first century believers would greet each other with what term? Maranatha, meaning, Lord, come quickly, gather your church, return for your people. Instead of being frightened by the possibility, they clung to it as the culmination of everything they believed. Not surprisingly, the New Testament reflects this intense anticipation by referencing Jesus' return, whether directly or indirectly, in every New Testament book except Philemon and 3 John. So we've got two New Testament books that do not reflect upon the hope of Jesus coming again for His own. It's pretty significant. And it's to that we turn in 2 Peter 3. Prophetic future. Focusing on future hope, not false fables of your false teachers. He warned us, The last time we were in 2 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7, he warned about a detour ahead. How there's two competing world systems. I want to stir up your minds, beloved, by reminder. The same message that the prophets and the apostles ministered to you. That which you remember and hold tight to is what the scoffers will laugh at. Mockers will come, following after their lust, saying, where is the promise of His coming? Verse 4. You don't really believe that, do you? So He warned us of a detour ahead. This brings us to the next section, verses 8 through 13. From mercy to meltdown to millennium, it's a grand adventure. In the midst of uncertainty and struggle, believers in Christ must never lose sight of the certain hope of the future that brings meaning to today, not then, but now. 
Read with me, if you will, in 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Having rehearsed what we have learned in the previous part of 2 Peter, let us move on in verses 8 and 9 as we rehearse what we know about the God of grace. Let's rehearse what we know about the God of grace. Peter turns to his beloved believers again to give two undeniable realities that would structure their thinking and yours and mine in the present. First of all is God's relationship to time. Second of all, God's redemptive use of time. Thus the title of the message this morning the patient calendar of God. Let's start in verse 8 with God's relationship to time. This is a tremendous truth to recognize and live every day in confident assurance. Rather than those who, who look at their watches to wonder when is the preacher just going to be done, so often in our Christian experience we're, we're looking at our spiritual watches wondering, how much longer, Lord? And, and before I move too far, let me, let me mention a presupposition we must note. Before we uh, expose ourselves to the meaning of the verse, we must, as diligent Bible students, recognize figurative language for what it is. Peter does not say here, one day is a thousand years to God. This is how people get in a lot of, study, uh, of trouble in their Bible study, whether it's passages like this or the book of Revelation, which we recently finished in our Scripture readings, with, as it's filled with symbols and types. Some of those of you who have been studying the hermeneutics with me, you've been, you've been told that even though you have figurative language, there is real literal meaning behind that. What is the kernel of truth? What is the timeless truth to be gathered for me to apply to my life, though figures and types and symbols are used? Because Peter uses one here. He says a day is as a thousand. That little word as is a big word. This is a simile to make a point that God understands time much differently from man much differently. He goes by a different clock, a different calendar. From our limited perspective, sometimes we have overwhelming odds at times. It seems like Christ's coming is an awful long ways away. That is the reality. Why is that? We measure time against time, but God sees it against eternity. If you wanted to flip back to Psalm 90, which is the psalm Peter is meditating on and sharing with us thoughts from Psalm 90, we have the eternality of God 
contrasted with the finiteness of man. In Psalm 90, God's eternity versus man's transitoriness. Notice verse 4. Psalmist says, for a thousand years in your sight, they're like yesterday when it passes by. Or as a watch in the night. You'll continue on in, in our reading here. He said, you've swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning, they're like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning, it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards evening, it fades and withers away. You know, I picture, we're, we're in the season of dandelions here. What boasts great brilliance of yellow, all of a sudden becomes these white fluffies that my daughter likes to uh, walk across so that they go into the wind. That's the picture the psalmist gives us here. The transitoriness of our life. where we, It's here one moment and gone the next against the backdrop of the eternal one who is not moved by time. So in Psalm 90, the eternity of God contrasted with the temporality of human beings. We're tempted towards impatience in the moment. You know, to bring it into my life, uh, uh, because of some changes in, in, in meds, I get to experience uh, weekly migraines again in my recent history. And uh, they've been lasting anyways from a day to three. And for any of you that uh, go through that, this is just my illustration. You fill in your own illustration. But for me, when you're in the midst of the throbbing and the pounding and the nausea, you just want it to go away. Lord, take it from me or take me home until it ends. That is all you're thinking about in the moment. In the bleak moments of difficulty. Jesus' return seems so far away. I just want to start to live again. What seems agonizingly long to us, it's a whisker of time to Him. It's a moment. The point is not that time has no meaning. That's not Peter's point. But rather, His use of time is such that we cannot confine Him to our schedules. Yet we think that we ought to be able to pencil Him on the calendar as to when that prayer request comes through with our answer on it. He uses extensive, possibly using a thousand years to think what we ought to be done in a day. And it'll take thousands of years to accomplish it. You look, think for a moment about what we've been talking about in adult Sunday school, progressive sanctification. We wish we were further along the road than we are. Hello, I think the Lord wishes we were further along too in our maturity and our growth and Christ-likeness. But it's progressive sanctification. Takes a lifetime. You look at the era that we live in, the church age. Jesus said to his original disciples, I'm coming again. And that coming again has lasted a while. You know, he'll do in six days what our minds can't conceive speak the universe into existence. Or He'll do in a day what we think would take an eternity. You look at the atonement. 
The time that all the sins of all the world who will ever believe in Christ were laid upon Christ. He accomplished redemption like that. Like it was nothing. One commentator said to the eternal who is omnipresent in time as in space, all times are equally near. So he's not limited by our schedule. He's guided by his own wisdom, acting when and as he knows his best, working all things together according to the counsel of his own will, and he doesn't consult us. So Peter rehearses this truth about our majestic God He says, Beloved, with Him one day is as a thousand. A thousand years like one day. Don't let it escape your notice. In other words, since He said, I'm stirring up your remembrance, I want you to remember this. He says, don't forget it. When He uses that term uh, of escaping notice, that is the same verb that was used of the false teacher's Back up in verse number five. You know, when when we're told that uh, Jesus is coming again, we're revealed in Scripture, His truth, that escapes their notice. You know, they, they deny biblical revelation. It escapes their notice. So, in contrast to the false teachers who are forgetful and scoff and ignore and rebel against, believers are exhorted to remember. Be reminded of biblical revelation and fact when tempted with feeling. Be driven to Scripture like Peter. Hold on tight to His promises which have never failed. Suppress and submit feelings and experience to biblical realities so that when it doesn't feel like he's taken notice and it doesn't seem like he's coming back, be informed by biblical reality. And after stating the relativity of time, Peter goes on to the loving forbearance of God. In verse 9, he gets into God's redemptive use of time. Notice what he says he is not slow or slack, or tardy about His promise, as some count slowness. But He is, however, patient. Patient. He's not slack. He doesn't linger. It's used only here in the New Testament. This is a thought that every saint needs to reckon with, along with the apostles and along with the prophets, whether that be Habakkuk in 2-3 or the psalmist who asks, How long, Lord? Paul records in Romans 13-11, Salvation is nearer than we first believed. You're closer to heaven. You're closer to glorification. You're closer to Jesus' return than when He first promised it. We know that. Hebrews 10-37 The writer reminds us, yet in a very little while, those are God's words, in a little while according to His calendar and His schedule and His plan and His wisdom, in a little while, He who is coming will come and He won't delay. You take that to the bank. He's not tardy. He's never late. He's not slack in respect to His promise. 
As a believer, one of your spiritual disciplines needs to be studying the attributes and character of God, which Peter schools us in this morning. Theology is for doxology. It is for worship. Because of who He is, so we respond in worship and loving obedience and humble service. He is immutable. He doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the immovable mover. He's the changeless changer. Why could James exclaim to us in James chapter 1 that every good gift and all perfect giving is from above? In the context there, he reminds us that there is no shifting shadow with God. He is the constant when everything is in shambles. So Peter reminds us, this great reminder, he does not loiter. He is not late. Instead, instead of being slow, he is patient. Maybe your Bible translates that, long-suffering. God has an immense capacity for patience, unlike us, and that's why it's a fruit of the Spirit that He works into us and grows us in. It is the kindness of God which leads to repentance. So, the argument is wrong that suggests how can a loving God send somebody to hell? What ought to be posed is how could somebody be so hard-hearted and love their sin so much they won't turn to such a good and gracious and kind and benevolent God who said that I will in no wise cast out those that come to me. I think it's interesting. I think it's even ironic that the false teachers use the wrong argument, the patience argument against Him. God's patience, His delay should have led them to repentance. That He didn't… You look at Adam and Eve in the garden, what did God promise? You eat the forbidden fruit, you transgress my law, you will surely what? You'll die. That happened immediately spiritually, but yet God was still so kind and gracious to let them live on in the flesh. God allows reprobates transgressors to live on, allowing them, affording them time to repent. It's a common theme in Scripture, God's patience that people would repent. And I mentioned some of those at the beginning of the sermon. He is slow to anger, but He will not delay forever. So we run to Him. The psalmists start off that way in Psalm 2, the nations being in an uproar. We are to kiss the sun lest we be decimated. Flee to Him for mercy, lest He pour His wrath out upon you. He endures endless blasphemies against His name, rebellion, murders, transgression of His holy law. It is not impotence or apathy which stays God's judgment, which comes along with His return. It is His patience. It is His patience. And while we're there, thinking about the patience of God and the plan of God, which has still so much degree of mystery, notice his argument. He said, the Lord's not slow, however, He is patient. 
not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This verse has been the battleground for debate between Arminianism and Calvinism for ages, and I don't seek to end the debate. To get you up to speed on where the debate goes with this verse, the former, the Arminian camp, argue that God wants everybody to be saved, and He'll spare no expense. But either through inability or restriction of His own sovereignty does not interfere with people's wills. Oftentimes, this argument is used to protect evangelistic zeal, to go to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, which we are commanded in Scripture to do. Shout from the rooftops the good news that Jesus saves. No biblical Calvinist rejects the gospel call being extended to the world. Some in their argument on this verse will insert verses like 1 Timothy 2.4, that God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Yet what is meant by all? What is the definition? Does all mean, is all, all, all means? Clearly, it is not all that come, because not all come. Uh, if you, unless you believe that everyone gets saved, even the devil himself, which is universalism, you believe in a limit to the atonement. You believe that there is a particular group that God indubitably will save. He'll be… Uh, otherwise, you know, we would have to discard all the Scriptures that teach us that hell is going to be thoroughly populated. There are those that will not respond to the gospel call. God is not impotent to purchase salvation and apply to individual sinners. He will bring them all the way to glorification. They would say, this, this former group would say, he's, he's made provision for everybody to be saved, but some will exercise their free will to, to exclude God, and uh, this he cannot prevent unless he takes away freedom of choice. I would suggest it's not that they cannot uh, uh, come but won't. What does a dead man do? Dead men doesn't do anything. Ephesians 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. There is total inability. God does not forbid those that want to come. They're just lacking in the wanting department. The other group, the latter group, argue that any here in the verse would, would be uh, any of the elect that all the elect will repent before Jesus comes because that's God's will. God will guarantee salvation to all for whom Christ died. If one is elect, they will eventually come to Christ. And when Peter says he is not wishing for any to perish, we know in the literary context that he's speaking against the Arminian view because he's given the reason. Any of you, he's already turned from the scoffers to the beloved, and he's rehearsing with them gospel truth that the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient, waiting for everyone that's going to come to come. He doesn't shut the gate early. 
That's why He's patient towards you. Whether you use the terms limited atonement or particular redemption, definite atonement. And the reason why I, I, I bring it up this morning, it's, it's in the verse, the battle rages and I am to stimulate your thinking, but the idea that there is some quote-unquote limit to the atonement is foreign to much contemporary Christianity. People would say that Jesus died for the world because it's of infinite value and any who believe in Christ can be saved. I think that misses the issue. That misses the argument. Calvinism or the doctrines of grace simply trying to be accurate in pointing out the effect of salvation, not the scope. It's an admission that the, there are several verses teaching a worldwide call to whosoever will may come. We preach the gospel to everybody because we can't roll up their shirt tails to see if E is stamped on their back as one of the elect. He didn't just make salvation possible if they will exercise faith. He made it actual. He purchased a real salvation, a definite atonement. After all, if it was not a real deal of salvation that Jesus accomplished, where is the justice of God? in sending to hell those for whom Jesus atoned for. That was kind of the last nail in the coffin for me years ago in thinking through this. The gospel of grace is, is preached throughout the world. Judgment is delayed because God is patient. That's even part of common grace to those who won't believe. But you look at the terms used in Scripture for salvation. Jesus provided a ransom, a term meaning price paid, price paid. So if the price has been paid, why would they be paying off that debt in hell forever? If the term, speaking of salvation, is redemption, where you've been set free, how would it be possible to still be in bondage if you were set free and redeemed? If the term propitiation means to render favorable, turning God's wrath aside. How can God's wrath be poured on that one in whom His wrath was turned away from in salvation if Jesus did not effect a real salvation? How could there be reconciliation and still warring forces between man and God? This is no hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, but a real definite salvation for God's chosen people. He purchased repentance and faith. He saved the elect. Yes, there is the universal verses that emphasize an indiscriminate call of the gospel. But we must also, in biblical ethics, admit that there are several passages that point to a peculiarity, a particularness. His people, Matthew 1.21. His sheep, John 10.15. His church, Acts 20.28 20, and Ephesians 5.23-26. And the us that Paul writes to Titus about in Titus 2.14. God does not sit back strumming His thumbs wishing somebody would take advantage of the, this great deal 
of salvation. He assures to accomplish it from beginning to end, the whole enchilada. That would be what would be a particular redemption, a definite atonement or limited atonement view. So I believe here in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, these are His people. He's not slow about the promises that He gave Him to return for them, but is patient, waiting for the last elect one to finally come in. Until the times of the Gentiles is completed. Until redemption plan on planet earth has been wrapped up for them to come to repentance. That none of His elect should perish. Insert the entirety of John 6. That He will not lose one of them. He has ordained and decreed that some will be saved. We need to be reminded, you, you, you cannot build a whole systematic theology on one verse to the exclusion of others. They must coexist because Scripture does not contradict Scripture. I'm not on some crusade for limited atonement. That's not a hill to die on for me, or what I believe is better phrased as particular redemption. But we must be ethically honest with Scripture that teaches worldwide proclamation of the gospel with a specific group of His own which He died for, not sending to hell those for whom He is atoned for. So it's not any without qualification, but any who will believe. If we had time, we would we'd try to unpack the thinking about this wishing. Is this decretive will or desired will of God? But time fails us. There must be an acknowledgement of the mystery and the depth of God's revelation. We might not figure it all out today. We might not figure it all out in this lifetime. But no text can be sacrificed at the altar of lazy exegesis or a commitment to some theological system that you were taught by somebody and do not hold by conviction. It's better to live with tension, better to live with mystery of the text than to swallow it up in some philosophical system that pretends to have a simple package deal. The kernel of truth that, Jesus, uh, that, uh, that Peter encourages us with about our God, He has delayed His coming for His own and His coming in judgment for His enemies. Unless you chalk it up to slackness or inattentiveness or that He's reneged on His promises, let us be reminded today and every day to come till Jesus comes that His patience, desiring for His people to repent. Is that you this morning? I loved the way uh, that I've read about how Spurgeon did evangelism. To be accurate with, with the, uh, the text of Scripture, since he didn't know who the elect were, he wouldn't say to the people sitting in his office or down the street, Jesus died for you because we don't know if they're part of the elect. You simply say, God died, you know, Jesus died for sinners. You're a sinner. Repent of your sin. Place your faith in Christ alone. Come to Jesus. He will in no wise cast out. With absolute assurance. Patience does not remove God's sovereignty. He's sovereign over time. He defers it for His own good, hidden purpose. Delay doesn't mean unfulfillment. So as we try to put a handle of truth to take with us, to meditate on this week, number one, beloved, remember, God's clock does not run on our timepieces. 
He has a perspective that we lack. And we need to worship Him through that mysterious, all-wise perspective of God. Number two, contrary to the scoffers who thought that slowness had invalidated the promise, contrary to the scoffers, we need to submit to His sovereign delay. It's not due to indifference or inability to perform. Though He waits, He is never slow and He is never late. We ought to take that to our prayer meetings tonight during service after the preaching time. We ought to take that to our difficulties and, uh, uh, and, and to our passionate prayers, even so come Lord Jesus. We ought to take that to our prayers, Lord, save so-and-so before you return in judgment for them and return of me to glory. That he's given time to repent. But an end date does come. And since we don't know when, even as believers, we live in expectation his long sufferingness had manifested itself before the cataclysmic flood by water. First Peter 3, 2 assures us of that. And that same mercy is extended before God takes the whole world out again. This time not by water, but by fire, a, a, a meltdown. And this is mercy to repent. Though God's above time, He's eternally stepped into time through the incarnation. He's intervened and immersed Himself in history, becoming the God-man, living a perfect life for those that couldn't, for us lawbreakers, that that perfect atoning death as our substitute could be credited to our account through faith in Him alone. So don't mistake His mercy for indolence. His return is delayed for specific salvific purposes even for the completion of the time of the Gentiles. Might He find us faithful to that agenda until He does come. Father, prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. Lord, though we preach like it all depends on me, we pray because we know it all depends upon You to take Your Word for Your Spirit to bear witness with your word of truth in our hearts as it is faithfully proclaimed. We celebrate the one who died the death that we deserved. You delay your return of blessing for the believers and wrath for unbelievers because you are patient. Unpack that truth in our lives and our hearts in the coming days should you tarry. We continue to pray, even so come Lord Jesus. Inaugurate your, or, or, or bring to fruition your eternal kingdom. Might that even be today that you return for your church. Might we live in expectation, putting off sin, and being faithful in evangelism for the glory of our great King who we reflect upon at this table, accomplishing for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. In His name we pray. Amen. Guys.
As we were contemplating what Peter had for us this morning, I'd mentioned John 6, and I'd, I'd encourage you even this afternoon as you've got some time before the evening service to reflect upon John 6. But Jesus there says that the bread of God is that which came down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that have seen me and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Maybe you've been at churches that, uh, uh, places that call themselves churches, do this communion every, every week, uh, don't have any special significance. We are exhorted to... Uh, Encourage people, if you do not know Christ, to let the cup and the bread pass. Set it in the pew next to you. If you, do, if you have not taken the bread of life into your life through faith in His name, just let it pass. Talk with myself or one of these guys up front that uh, deliver the elements to you. We'd love to take the Bible and share with you the gospel of Christ. If you've got any hidden sin, you'd be partaken unworthily. Let the cup pass, even if you know Him, if you not prepared your heart, but as we reflect upon so great a sacrifice, Paul reminds us that I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of him. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we do reflect upon the marvelous plan of redemption that you, the Father, orchestrated in eternity past, who sent your Son to purchase a bride for the praise of your own great name. And you gave your Spirit to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We thank you for Christ. And ask that we would live thank you lives in the way that we would be seeking to be sanctified this week through your word and your spirit, putting off sin, putting on righteousness for the glory of our King. And as we scatter for evangelism, take these words of the good news and plant them on fertile soil that we might see sinners come to faith in Christ and become saints. We entrust our feeble efforts to your care, asking that you'd glorify your Son in the salvation of souls. We pray this in Christ's matchless name, amen. David.